Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. We're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest. Uh, Kelton. And we're listening to a very famous story. This is from the book of Genesis, chapter 11. The story is very short, only nine verses. We just heard a quote from the King James Bible. Now here's the entire story in its entirety from the New Revised Standard Version. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. God came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And God said, Look, they are all one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So God scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there God confused the language of all the earth, and from there God scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. You ever sabotage your own kids? Kicking down their block tower. (laughs) (laughs) So the story isn't from the Bronze Age, but it is about it, kinda. It's a fair guess that this part was written between about 700 and 400 BCE, so more than 500 years after the end of the Bronze Age. So it's kind of ancient history through an Iron Age lens. Now the text says that they migrated from the east. Earlier in Genesis, Eden is described as in the east. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, the gate, guarded by a cherub with a flaming sword, is on the east side of the Garden of Eden. Side note, cherubs... Always little naked babies with tiny little wings because... In the Old Testament, they're like angels. Like, like yeah, powerful. I know, I know yeah, yeah. yeah, all the yeah. angels are, you know, <laughs> really, really big fighters. Permission to imagine that it is like a, like a, a, like a 12... A yeah, like a 12-pound baby with wings. Yeah! yeah like, like a claymore. All right, cool, cool, cool. That's what we're going with. <laughs> and when Cain is banished, he wanders around east of Eden. The cardinal directions, west, north, and south, don't appear in Genesis until after this chapter. So, they migrate from the east to a plain in the land of Shin'ar. In lots of books, you'll see the claim that Shin'ar is their word for Sumer. It's, of course, likely that there were some migrations from Iran into the South Mesopotamian plain. Of course, you remember that the tradition of head shaping spread from Iran down to Ubayid Mesopotamia. So, Shin'ar has some cognates in other Semitic languages. In the kind of Akkadian written at Amarna in Egypt, it's called Shanhar. In Egyptian, which is not a Semitic language, but like the Semitic languages, it is in the Afro-Asiatic language family. This word is Sangar. In modern Arabic, it's Sinjar, as in Sinjar province in Iraq. All of these refer to northern Mesopotamia, not the alluvial plain. But in Genesis 10, Shinar is definitely used to refer to southern Mesopotamia. So So it's commonly noted that the pun on Babel works in both English and Hebrew. The original pun is on the city of Babylon, which in Akkadian was called Bab-Eli, or Gate of the Gods. The Hebrew verb bilbel means to confuse, so the original pun on the name of Babylon referred to confusion between people, not the speech itself. The word Babel has its own etymology in English, independent from the Bible. It originally derived from the Greek barbaros, meaning barbarian or someone who doesn't speak Greek. Wait, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, so the Greek word barbaros, meaning barbarian or non-Greek speaker, yeah. probably comes from a Greek guy who's like, oh, you know, those Persians are all like, bar, 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 bar. <laughs> 
Oh, it's awful. You know all those guys not in Greece always be like, ba 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 ba. Ooh, it's it's fun to find the super racist jokes from like... Oh yeah, 2,500 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the text mentions construction with mud bricks and bitumen. These were the only construction materials local to southern Mesopotamia. As far as I know, there aren't any bitumen wells inside the alluvium per se, but there were some in Kuwait and some in central Mesopotamia, so nearby. They wouldn't have easy access to any stone for building or wood from any trees large enough to build buildings out of. Unlike the mountains of Judah, where this text was first written down, hence the emphasis on a different construction style. In the story, Enmerkar and the lower Lord of Arata, Enmerkar's prayer to Inanna is to make everyone speak the same language, which in context would be Sumerian, and when that text was written in the 21st century BCE... In the 21st century. BCE. Ah, yes. that, yeah, I was going yep. to say I never learned how to use a tablet. <laughs> as far as they knew, the entire world used cuneiform, depending on whether or not they had Egypt in mind. During the actual Uruk period, probably many languages were converging on a single place, which over time led to fewer languages spoken by more people, and cuneiform became the framework for writing during the Bronze Age everywhere between Egypt and Iran. But these administrative texts tell us nothing about demographics or ethnicity, as we would think of it today. Let alone the language that they themselves are written in. Wow. Well, again, because they're basically just pictograms and numbers. Yeah, 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 so you don't know what language it was written in. Right. There's no phonetic aspect yet. That's super interesting. Yeah, no. So we have, the, like, the first text we don't know. We're not sure what language the first texts are written. People assume it's Sumerian. Like, it's most likely Sumerian, but it could easily be a totally unknown language. Yeah, yeah, just using Sumerian. Showed up Sumeri yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super interesting. Right? That's awesome. Right. A written language that you cannot identify what language you wrote it in. True. Anyway, the main point here is that it's not clear what outcome God fears. The King James quote is, Now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So he doesn't fear a particular result but the power to make and enact a decision on a society-wide scale. So we'll be looking at writing, which of course enabled these kinds of huge construction projects that we'll look at today. To coordinate these complex projects, the Uruk world needed a standardized code, so not just the same words, but also the same measurements. So bricks, rations, and workers all had to be standardized and interchangeable so that they could become infinitely scalable so that nothing could be restrained from them, which they imagined to do. Uh, cool up until it's interchangeable for the worker. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not cool. Yep. I got my fungible employee. <laughs> exactly. So, the Hebrew Bible itself preserves a memory of grueling labor projects in the Book of Exodus. Previously, in the midst we've looked at, Ninurta, Enlil, and the Akkadian gods have all commanded manual labor on humans' part. You know, there are many ways for humans existing outside the state to be standardized and forced to perform labor for the state. So, you know, slaves, peasants, and debtors all forcibly contribute standardized work to these colossal monuments. Got my three favorite marks of a functioning society. Bricks, rations, and slaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to go with slaves, peasants, and debtors. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know your society is doing great when you got all three. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know truly you are a statesman who has built something worthwhile. When you use the word peasant, I'm like, all right, I, they are beholden to some lord. Yep. Right? I wouldn't use it to describe some sustenance farmer. No, exactly. No. <laughs> the process of state building is yeah. uh, turning farmers into peasants. Uh, oh, <laughs> oh that just seems insulting because you know people do have to grow food, so yeah. I don't need I don't need every word for the people who grow food to be derogatory. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. the, that's the etymology of villain. What? Yeah, villain used to be like a value neutral, just like poor farmer. Just used to be a guy who grew food. Yeah, and oh. yeah, and rich people were just like, "You're acting like a poor person." Yeah. No. <laughs> right. We've talked about resources, you know, mud bricks, bitumen, imported wood and stone. So let's look at the labor projects they built during the Uruk period and what it took to build them. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest, Kira. So in this episode, we'll be looking at Unug in the late Uruk period, between about 3400 and 3100 BCE. Specifically, we're going to look at monumental construction, we're going to look at ceramics, so bricks and pottery, and we're going to look at the invention of writing for the first time in human history. 
So by the late Uruk period, the population of Unuk proper had grown to between 40 and 50,000 people. The area of the city has more than tripled since the early Uruk, growing from 70 hectares to 250 hectares, or about one square mile. At least 44,000 square meters of that area, or at least 2% and probably more, were covered by buildings. So in general, late Uruk Unug had a population density similar to that of modern Monaco or Seoul, South Korea. But the larger metropolitan area of Unug, including its dependent villages, was about 850 hectares, or over three square miles total. These smaller villages contributed labor, produce, livestock, and sometimes migrants to the city. The population of this entire metropolitan area would be closer to 80 or 90,000 people, giving it a population density higher than modern Singapore. As I mentioned, there were two separate temple complexes around which the early city of Unug grew. The wall around both of them was not built until around 2900 BCE, which is after the Uruk period. One of these is the Kulaba, the temple complex of the god An. It'll be famous for the later White Temple, which will be 24 by 19 meters, standing at least 6 meters tall. And the other one is the Ayana, the temple precinct of the goddess Inanna. We're going to be spending most of our time here. Can we visit that? Is that a physical place that we can visit these days? I don't know how much stuff is still there, but I'd be down. That would be so very cool. Yeah. To like actually tour all the places that you're talking about right now. Yep. That's an idea. Ooh. But there are two separate centers in Unug. One has one temple and the other has another. Is that it? Right. So yeah, one of them is centered on the temple to Hanana. So it's not one building, but entire complex of buildings. Are there living quarters here as well? It's like a full city with, with the temple and with bureaucracy and with living quarters and with trade and all the usual things. So the monumental center may have been home to like the most important like priests and temple officials, but okay. people would have lived in like regular person houses, like separated okay. spatially from the temple complex. Yeah. So the default layout of a Mesopotamian city is that it has this kind of like separate monumental temple complex at the center and different quarters for regular oh, people um, living. Oh, this reminds me of Chinese something or other, House of Heaven. Oh yeah, the uh, Forbidden City. Forbidden City. Yep. Yeah. No, well, okay, yeah. Not forbidden, sounds like, but similar yeah, concept yeah. maybe? Yeah. Which, I mean, both of them, I think, are similar in the sense that they kind of take the idea of the ruler's household and expand it to, like, you know, a, a massive degree. So, you know, in the case of the Chinese emperor, of course, it's like, you know, the household of the emperor includes all of the, you know, bureaucrats and officials and eunuchs and you know, whatever. And in this case, the temple is considered to be the household of the god. And that's why the tripartite building is used for both public buildings during the Ubayid period, when they're like the large houses of important chiefs and, you know, other administrative, religious, social stuff is done inside that building as well, to, you know, the, the much, much larger version of that is, you know, the entity who owns the household is the abstraction of the god. But now you have a much more complicated administrative apparatus, you know, a much more complicated network of people who do religious stuff, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's still conceived of as the household of the god. Like the literal household? Like a physical literal? Well, yes and yes. I mean, the, the, both the sense that the building is the house where the god lives, and in the sense that the entity of the household, like the, uh, you know, economic unit that is the members of the family plus the servants plus the, you know, everything else. Mm -hmm. So construction here started around 3400 BCE. By about 3200 BCE, eight to nine hectares of the Ayana complex was walled off. As I mentioned in the previous episode, these centers are about 300 meters apart, which is a three to four minute walk. So let's start with these monuments at the Ayana. The stone cone mosaic temple was built during the Uruk 6 period, around 3400 BCE, or the very beginning of the late Uruk. It was about 20 by 30 meters. It's named after the cones decorating the walls. These mosaic cones, of course, are usually made out of clay, but they're common across the Uruk world. Inside this temple is a water basin. It has its floors waterproofed with imported bitumen. The temple once contained a life-size statue of a man, possibly a ruler or maybe a god. 
The statue was broken into pieces and later buried in the Riemkin building to the north. Riemkin being the standardized style of brick used during the Uruk period. Next in time, during the Uruk 5 period, around 3300 BCE, was the Limestone Temple. This is huge, 27 by 80 meters, or more than half an acre. The limestone would have been imported from a quarry 80 kilometers upriver on the west bank of the Euphrates. Its roof would have required somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 linear meters of timber, or up to 6 kilometers of tree height. Both of the buildings I just mentioned are called temples because they both have a tripartite design, but unlike earlier buildings used for worship, neither has an altar or an offering table, and neither would later tripartite buildings built in the Aana, which might signal a shift in ritual practice. So, you know, it might be that what used to be made of stone and is like a permanent fixture in the building is now made of wood and is moved out when they're done with it. It might mean that the rituals that they're doing have changed. So, you know, they, they no longer need the same gear for it. And it might also mean that this particular building is not a temple where they do religious rituals so much as it is a meeting space or a, like, administrative space, an office, uh, storage. I mean, there's there's all kinds of things that the temple does that aren't only religious rituals. Right. Okay, well, that follows. My church is also a preschool. Yeah. And no, they don't that... have an altar on which to sacrifice the children, so. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that checks. Yeah, and they do weddings, and they do funerals, and they do picnics, and so on. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah. Let's move forward to the final phase of the late Uruk, or the Uruk IV period. We're around 3200 BCE. This is the period when writing will be invented. It is the heyday of the Uruk period, and it's when the colonial network collapses. So near the beginning of this period, they built Building E, which was a new massive square structure. Each side measured 57 meters. Multiple entrances led to two symmetrical buildings with lots of rooms and halls surrounding a large square courtyard, 31 meters square. Then Building E was dismantled, and on its foundation was built a traditional tripartite structure, except huge, 80 by 50 meters. This is Building D. They also built a row of new, elaborately decorated halls. Nearby was the Pillar Temple. This is on a raised platform decorated with cone mosaics. You would approach up two flights of stairs and pass through a columned hall. There are eight freestanding mosaic columns, each about 2.5 meters in diameter, or 10 feet. This is the first known instance of columnar monumental architecture. So all Greek, Roman, and neoclassical buildings with these kinds of columns owe something to these architectural innovations at the Aeon during the Uruk 4A period. They also had a massive walled garden. It was 60 meters square, or nine-tenths of an acre, partially sunken into the ground. And unlike other structures, water channels drain into it, not out. This may have been used to grow vegetables or produce for use in temple feasts. And this may be the garden depicted on the Uruk Garden Stella. This description is bringing to mind, like, the smell of wet dirt like i'm in mm -hmm. a greenhouse right now it's cool it's shaded and quiet and damp might have been the vegetable garden for the temple itself okay i was just imagining like benches and flowers and foliage yeah i mean maybe also that it's kind of imagining a zen garden <laughs> or like right contemplative I don't know, it kind of reminds me of the fact that it's like you know the, the language that the book of genesis uses to describe the garden of eden is very much reminiscent of the kind of persian garden like that was literally called a paradise like paradise is mm -hmm. a Persian word originally mm -hmm. you know a, a very very much a like thing constructed by elites to show their wealth and prestige and all that but it is also kind of a beautiful modern work of art in you know horticulture and it's interesting that you know when the writers of the book of genesis were imagining the idyllic beginning of time they put it in a kind of like curated persian style garden seriously yeah. i would like one of those please true i would like one garden of eden in my backyard yes <laughs> it's worth asking what these buildings were for they're built in a tripartite shape which is the traditional shape of a public building there might be temples or they might be scaled up versions of ubai public buildings without having a primarily religious use 
We have lots of evidence for administrative activities, like cylinder seals and seal impressions. As I mentioned, written language is developed during the Uruk-4 period. These might be administrative offices operated by the temple bureaucracy. So in other words, they might be more like office buildings than places of worship themselves. Generally, monumental buildings in the Ayana area have lots of entrances, as opposed to the Kulaba complex, which has carefully controlled entrances. This might suggest that the Ayana is designed for events involving large crowds, possibly feasts, which would explain all of the hards. So we remember during the Ubay period, tripartite buildings served a variety of purposes. You know, ritual storage, cooking, feasting, probably other events, you know, weddings, funerals, stuff like that. And also increasingly in these tripartite buildings, we see seals and tokens, which are signs of administrative activity. So these monumental buildings in the Uruk Ayana might just be a scaled up version of the same concept. The main difference here being that different activities are taking place in different buildings. But generally the entire complex is still serving the same purposes as the Ubayid public buildings. You know, worship, feasting, social events, and collecting, recording, storing, and dispersing food. Jumping across town to the Kulaba complex, there is a room called the Rimken Gabauda. Mostly, I was really excited to hear you say that word because it looks awful to pronounce. So Rimken is the name of the bricks, which is part mm. of the name of the room. So what does mm. Gabaud mean? That's a good question. I really want it to mean house, brick house. I could look it up. Let's. Literally building, but it's Baud is build. So Gabaude is built. So built of brick. Yep. I mean, basically brick house. This is an 18 by 20 meter room. It's basically a pit dug into the ground, which is open on top. It was made of Rimken bricks, the characteristic brick of the Uruk period, and then plastered over. And basically it was filled with stuff from the temple. And then it appears that all of that temple paraphernalia was burnt and then buried while it was still burning. This may be a ritual disposal of holy items. So way back in episode one, we introduced the concept of the end of an object's use life when there is a prescribed ritual process for disposing of that object. The furniture from the temples might have been holy in and of itself, so they might have had one appropriate way to get rid of it. Inside, to quote the Cambridge Ancient History, we found, quote, hundreds of pottery and stone vases, alabaster bowls, copper vessels, clay cones, gold leaf, and nails with heads covered in gold leaf, weapons, arrowheads, mace heads, knives, spearheads, and animal bones, end quote. In 2005, Guillermo Algaze wrote that they found, quote, a unique throne-like chest, intricately inlaid with variously colored limestones, alabaster, and lapis. In 2001, he wrote, quote, at least one javelin or harpoon head made of an unusual copper-silver alloy, over 25% silver, end quote, which seems to have been imported from Anatolia, given the similarities to spearheads found at Arslan Tepe. We also found obsidian bladelets, but no human remains. So this is not a particularly rich burial site, but instead a disposal pit for objects. I want to know who this Guillermo Algazi guy is. He sounds really interesting, yeah. and um, you've mentioned him a bunch of times. No, he is the guy to go to for takes on the Uruk period. <laughs> Basically, even if you don't agree with him, you have to engage with his argument. Yeah. So everyone has a, some kind of take. What's What's interesting about him is that in 1989, he wrote an article about the Uruk period, basically saying, it's like, I, we can't prove that this was a single unified empire with the capital in Unug, but it might be. And, you know, we, the, ultimately we don't know. And a bunch of people are like, we can't know. And he's like, okay, <laughs> it turns out we can't know, which is, which is true. <laughs> but in context, his argument is like, when we look at Mesopotamian history over the long durée, as it were, you know, over a long period of time, we see kind of cycles of increasing centralization and, you know, decreasing centralization. You know, so the first well-documented centralization period in the historical record is the Akkadian Empire, when, you know, literally one guy conquers most of Mesopotamia and rules it as a kingdom and, you know, passes it on to his kids, etc. Oh, that's uh, Sargon of Akkad. His name in Akkadian is Shavrim Ken, which is the one true king. But in the Bible, a different guy, a much later king of Assyria, is called Sargon. So we call Sargon Sargon. You know, on the face of it, it's it's obvious why 
you would make an empire. And so you can take everyone else's stuff, you know, and in the long run, control access, control trade routes, you know, control the means by which goods travel from elsewhere into your kingdom, etc. That and all of the later periods of centralization are all done under very strong territorial monarchies. And there are a lot of reasons why we can't automatically assume that the Uruk period is like that. In general scholarship, as far as I can tell, seems to agree that it was almost certainly not a centralized political empire so much as it was a system of colonization directed by one or more Uruk cities, you know, in the Alluvium. Yeah, I was actually wondering, every time you mentioned colonization, I was like, who's colonizing who? What's going on there? Right. That's that's Algazi's framework, is that he sees it as colonization, comparing it to Emmanuel Wallerstein's world systems theory. Which is funny, because he says, we can apply this theory to, to the old times, and everyone else says, no, we can't. And he says, yes, we can. We just have to change it so that it applies to old times. I was like, oh, fair. <laughs> But, you know, that uh, Wallerstein, 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 one of them, you know, developed this theory looking at modern European empires, that there's a core where all of the political stuff happens. And, you know, there's a core group of people that control a periphery, which is, you know, the rest of the colonies, and dictate what happens, and you know, the core are the ones to benefit, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, Unug, the city, does not reach a large degree of political centralization all by itself all at once, like isolated from the rest of the world. Like it's part of this whole system of, you know, a world system, if you will, you know, of trade and political and social interaction and so on. So at a certain point, you can't really say that X city is getting big and complex. You say the whole system is, you know, allowing for the growth of a city that gets big and complex because it's coordinating the trade and activities and so on. Right. It can't, it, it can't get big and complex all on its own. It can't right. exist uh, in a vacuum. It's got to right. be part. And, you know, when you look at other regions, you know, other places at other points in time, you know, when the system gets that big and complex, it starts to standardize by itself. So in other words, just because we see a lot of outposts popping up that have a Southern style material culture doesn't necessarily prove that people from the South are going there and founding cities in their own image. It just proves that, you know, because the South is the most urban and, you know, the most connected part of the system, you know, that is the the template, I guess, that other, you know, smaller, less complex societies, you know, parts of the world use when they ascend to the next stage of world connectedness. So to look at the construction of all these monuments, in 2013, al estimated that the total volume of the walls of the limestone temple was about 25,000 square meters, or 6.6 .6 million gallons of limestone. This would take 1,400 workers, working 10 hours a day, five years to build. And that doesn't include related work, like leveling the foundation before building, you know, transporting goods and so on. In order to build all these massive building projects, these temples needed control of hundreds to thousands of people's labor for years on end. And of course, they would have to feed them while they were working, as well as acquire the resources from abroad to actually build these buildings. And the last renovation of the White Temple in the Kulaba complex had a terrace 43 by 60 meters at its base and 13 meters tall. This would have taken 1,500 laborers working 10 hours a day, five years to build. Now multiply that by the number of other monuments around the same size found around late Urukunug. And of course, this doesn't even include all the labor required to feed them. You know, if the workers are working during planting and harvesting season, they can't feed themselves. So of course, the temple needs access to the surplus grain of an entire community, hence the 850 hectare metropolitan area. And there was also probably a class of unfree workers, or slaves, working year-round. And whatever land the temple would have owned in its own right at this point would not have been nearly enough to feed all these people, which is why it needed to collect so much grain from regular people. At Unug, we see a metal smelting workshop with several channels in the floor and holes 50 centimeters deep. So it's possible that they would put copper molds in these holes, pour molten metal into the channels, and then scoop them from the channels into the molds. Archaic texts also record metal collected as tribute, including copper, copper alloys like bronze, and meteoric iron, among others. They also mention gold and silver objects. 
Of course, Ayana would have needed a huge amount of timber to build these buildings. It would have gotten pine trees, either from the Taurus or the Zagros Mountains. Aside from pine, they also imported cedar, elm, and poplar wood. The latest renovation of the Ayana used 11 linear kilometers of timber just for the roof of one building. For three buildings, they used somewhere between 13 and 26 linear kilometers. And of course, this would have been a fraction of Unug's total timber needs. So they imported limestone to use as bricks. They also ground it down into plaster. You know, sometimes they would grind the limestone down into plaster and then make bricks out of that limestone plaster and then mortar them together with more limestone plaster. This process seems to be unique to the Uruk period. This limestone might come from the desert to the west, but it probably came from upstream because, of course, it's much easier to put that amount of rock on a boat and float it downstream than it is to drag it across the desert. As far as other resources, they needed flint for tools, as well as basalt and veined marble for monumental decoration. They also used lots of bitumen to make asphalt, especially in Unug. So, of course, this kind of resource exploitation can't continue forever, but they will deal with that problem in the future, as we will. So obviously clay is one of the only resources that the alluvium has in abundance, that and water. So they use clay to make lots of tools that were made of stone in the north. You know, sickles, grinding tools, bricks, and so on. The Uruk saw a change in their clay figurine making process. During the Ubaid, they would often start with a piece for the body and add arms, legs, and a head, and then paint it. Whereas during the Uruk period, they would take one big piece of clay, mold it into the general shape of a human, and then trim away excess clay. And these were painted less often. So during the Uruk period, both brickmaking and pottery were industrialized. In other words, now that you have an army of workers and a very large bureaucracy to oversee their labor and feed them, now you have something resembling assembly line production. So bricks were made from mud and chaff and water. Chaff, of course, being the parts of the cereal plants that you don't eat. What's new during the Uruk is the Reemkin brick that I mentioned. This is a square brick with standardized shape and size. It's 16 by 16 centimeters square. These were traditionally made in molds and sun-dried. We see them across the alluvium and as far away as northern Syria. When you're making these, the weather needs to be warm and dry enough to air dry the clay, which it is in late spring and summer. This happens to be the end of the harvest season and the beginning of the off-season, which fortuitously enough is also when you end up with a bunch of chaff. In a good year, one hectare of barley can produce 500 kilograms of chaff, which can make about 800 mud bricks. In other words, you need a huge amount of farmland to produce the amount of chaff in order to make the bricks to build these huge monuments. Because 800 mud bricks won't get you far with all these buildings that we're looking at. And the standardized dimension of this brick means that you can plan architectural projects years in advance. You know, again, the bureaucracy can allocate resources ahead of time, labor, chaff, mud, etc. For example, if Habuba Kibera was designed in Udug, whoever is drawing up the plans doesn't need to know about the local brick mold size because the bricks are all the same. And of course, manual laborers are cranking out more bricks than they ever have, which is working them harder and harder. But at the same time, that gives greater creativity to the people that are actually drawing up the plans for buildings because they already know the specifications of all the parts that they're going to be using. So, you know, this creativity for the ruling class comes at the expense of a lot of work for the working class. So the Uruk doesn't seem to see that much advancement in firing temperatures of pottery. Pots are still fired at a maximum of between 1,050 and 1,150 degrees Celsius. This creates hard, strong, and waterproof pottery, but it's not quite hot enough to make porcelain yet. The fast pottery wheel was the major development of the Uruk period. It appeared around the same time as wheels on vehicles. The slow pottery wheel, which appeared during the Ubaid, may have been the inspiration for the cartwheel, as well as the fast wheel. But either way, when you have a fast pottery wheel, you can make more pots faster. One of the characteristic pottery styles we see of the late Uruk is bottle-shaped bottles, you know, for wine and or oil. These are space-efficient to pack, and the narrow top is easy to stop up with clay to seal it. Cylinder seal impressions depict different types of pottery, lots of which are also found in the archaeological record. The emphasis in the seal art is of people making offerings and performing other rituals. So it's not necessarily trying to depict the styles of the pots, it's depicting a scene. It's just that in that scene, they're just painting the pots that they see, which are also the pots that we found in the archaeological site. One of the lexical texts, which we'll introduce today, was the vessels list. We have 116 lines from this list in the Uruk period, and we have 93 total copies of this list. It's divided into three parts, 
one for types of vessels, one for cheese and dairy products, and one for textiles. During Uruk, we see a proliferation of styles. You know, the Ubayid had lots of painted pottery, but very few different shapes. Whereas during the Uruk period, we have many different shapes, and increasingly during the middle and late Uruk, unpainted pottery becomes more common. This proliferation of pottery styles is the result of labor differentiation. So, you know, now that manual workers are mass-producing pottery for utilitarian use, like these beveled rib bowls that we'll talk about in a bit, now expert potters are freed up for experimentation. There are now several spheres of pottery production. There's, of course, domestic, as there always have been. You know, people make their own pots for use at home. We have the institutional sphere, lots of which is made up of beveled rim bowls, which are made in molds. And we also have the professional sphere, producing fine, unpainted pottery made on a wheel. In archaic texts, we already see a sign indicating potter. That Sumerian word is Bahar, which is ultimately from a Semitic language. In 2017, Susan Pollock talked about Walter Benjamin's concept of mechanical reproduction. So this is the process by which a craftsman making an entire product is replaced by an assembly line process, where many different people each do one part of the process over and over again. As more production moves into the institutional sphere, we also see the proliferation of styles made to be exhibited and reproduced in a political context. So earlier we talked about how pottery can be a status symbol and how it's one of the public aspects of identity that are often emulated from a different culture. This is especially the case now that more and more regular people are using mass-produced pots. So now that more production is moving into the institutional setting, that production is going to reflect the needs of the institution. We also see the concept of time being divided into smaller sections. Where, you know, in an agricultural society, the tasks are divided based on the year. Obviously, your main job is always tending the fields, but there are specific jobs that are performed by season. Whereas in this increasingly institutional context, time is managed in smaller and smaller increments. A little bit later in the episode, I'll mention the calendar that appears to have been put into practice during the late Uruk period, which divided the year into 30-day months and divided each month into 10-day weeks to basically measure the productivity of each individual worker by the day instead of just by the season. Again, part of this trend of increasing industrial production and industrialization of the Uruk economy. So we're seeing something approaching modern quote-unquote scientific management or Taylorism. These highly decorated pots were probably made by local specialized potters. So, you know, this intense decoration would be a sign of their craft. Whereas during the Uruk period, like I said, pottery is increasingly undecorated. The fast pottery wheel allows for larger scale production, as do molds for beveled rim bowls. But just as with brick making, what used to be a specialized craft is now repetitive, mind-numbing labor. And, of course, repetitive labor is always a part of any craft. But ideally, that would be what you do as an apprentice until you acquire the skills. And then you obviously still have to do the work. But now you are respected as a craftsperson. And you have the artistic freedom to add whatever kind of designs you want at the schedule that you prefer. Whereas now, in this institutional setting, the fate of manual laborers, mass-producing pottery, is to do manual labor until your back gives out. So moving on to writing, in his 2017 book, Against a Grain, James C. Scott wrote that, quote, The state is a recording, registering, and measuring machine. So when a government surveyor arrives with a plane table, or census takers come with their clipboards and questionnaires to register households, the subjects understand that trouble in the form of conscription, forced labor, land seizures, head taxes, or new taxes on croplands cannot be far behind. Unquote. So the development of writing is immensely complex, and this is a short overview. So many signs that are later used as pictographic signs in cuneiform have a long history on painted pottery in both Mesopotamia and Iran. These include the signs for a bullhead, star, god, heaven, water, and earth. And the reeds used for impressing designs into pots may have evolved into the stylus used for cuneiform. So the first stage in the development of writing were these clay tokens that we've been talking about. They were used as early as 8,000 BCE in northern Mesopotamia. These were generally unfired for short-term use, and they would serve as a record either of a transaction or of a promise of a future transaction. Sometimes these tokens were a model of the thing being accounted for. So, you know, we have little tokens of cattle, which probably represent some kind of exchange of cattle. These were widespread in Unug by around 3400 BCE, so the beginning of the late Uruk period. 
The next stage is clay balls with tokens inside. So we have the same kind of tokens. The innovation here is enclosing them in a single ball. So you can press the tokens into the clay on the outside of the ball so that the clay on the outside will have an impression of the tokens on the inside. So that you have one object that you're carrying around, but that one object has information about what is inside without having to break it open. And then the advancement from here is to squish these balls flat so you can stack them and store them long term. They're also easier to write on now that they have a flat surface. We see the next phase around 3300 BCE, and these are numerical tablets, which we've been talking about in the Uruk expansion episodes. Essentially, these are numbers, but with no writing. In context, it would have been obvious what they were counting. They weren't meant for long-term record-keeping, just a short-term way to write down a number and then remember it later. And then the last phase before proper writing is tablets with these numbers combined with pictographic signs. These records don't represent grammatical sentences. Pictographs are not the same as words. But we do now have, for example, a bullhead combined with a number, which records that amount of cattle, and you know, same for amounts of grain and so on. These are essentially receipts of particular transactions, or inventories of temple storehouses. So in the episode on late Uruk Susa, I mentioned that Susa used only three of the 13 numerical systems used in Uruk Unug, which suggests that the temple bureaucracy at Unug was bigger and it dealt with more stuff. So I mentioned the sexagesimal system used at Susa, where the numerals are 1, 10, 60, 600, 3600, and 36,000. Here the pattern alternates between multiplying by 10 and multiplying by 6. This is used to count slaves on livestock, along with various objects. And we have a simpler version of the same system from Udug that just has numerals for 1, 10, and 60. This is used for dead animals and particular types of beer. I mentioned the bisexagesimal system used at Susa, with numerals for 1 half, 1, 2, 10, 60, 120, 1200, and 7200, where the pattern is times 10, times 6, times 2, repeating, plus 1 half and 2 as extra numerals for fun. This was used for grain, fish, and dairy rations. And we have a simpler version of this bisexagesimal system from Unug that only uses 1, 10, 60, 120, and 1200, which is that same times 10, times 6, times 2 pattern without any complications. This was used to measure our rations and maybe fish. They also had a calendar with a period of 10 days, which we might be able to call an Uruk week, and then 30-day months, and then 12-month years. So essentially they had a 360-day year divided into 36 weeks of 10 days each. This makes the math easier, but eventually it'll fall out of sync with the solar year. The solar year is 365 days, 5 hours, and about 49 minutes. So in later periods of Mesopotamian history, they added 5 intercalarie days between years. So essentially they would have a 360-day year, which again makes the math easy, and the priests and astrologers and so on would figure out how many days to add between those 360-day years so that every new year would fall at the same part of the solar year. It's possible that they were already doing that during the Uruk period. So of course, these developments are happening in a bigger and more complex society with more intergroup competition. New patterns of production, exchange, and consumption are creating the need for new administrative methods, like writing, of course. And I, I love the running theme that as things get bigger, the basic unit can diversify in function. Like people right. can go from being hunters and gatherers and farmers doing like one thing, feeding themselves to keep themselves going to like craftsmen and statespeople and whatever other specialized jobs you can take on when you don't have to like fight for survival and mm. buildings can have more specified purposes like you mentioned here and just reminds me of like in biology how this happens with the cell like a single-celled organism has to do everything for itself it has to find its food it has to process its waste in the one cell it has to be able to find the food and detect danger and move away from it if it, if it has an amotility and then you know if you clump a bunch of single-celled organisms together it's a colony and they communicate with each other and they get more efficient 
but they're not quite like super specialized. They each still only work for themselves. And then, well, if you get into to our level, we have tissues. Each tissue has a different, very specific function, and they form organs, which has a higher function, and then organ systems within a whole organism. And we just get really, really complicated and really efficient and do super cool things the bigger we get. But I guess we can't get too big because the dinosaurs are dead. So, <laughs> well, it worked for them for a while. Yeah, yeah. No, some of them are still around too. <laughs> yep. It's, it's a cool, I just think it's a really cool theme. It just makes me happy. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, the one thing is that a you know, individual scribe is highly specialized at a skill that has no actual application right. outside of the city state. So, you know, inside the city state, he's a white collar professional, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who has a very complicated code of, you know, representation memorized, but, you know, can't hunt, can't gather, you know, probably not right. that great of a farmer, etc. The single cell within the larger organism is not going to survive on its own at that point once it differentiates, once it has a really specific purpose, like a nephron inside a kidney. It does that job really well, but it only does one job and it can't support itself and it needs the the whole system. But it also made me think about, to continue the analogy, just thinking about, you know, you get a large complex being made up of smaller, you know, organ systems and so on. But even beyond the level of that individual being, I'm thinking of like symbiotic relationships with other life forms. You know, my favorite is the fungal networks that connect the roots of trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, mycorrhizal networks. A tree is obviously enormous and, you know, complex as plants go. Mm. Yes. But even outside the level of you know, the tree itself, it has it is part of a symbiotic network of not only other trees, but also other organisms completely different to itself that serve complementary needs. And that even though, you know, the tree couldn't, well, probably not intelligent, you know, as we understand it but you know they're all connected and by serving their own needs they serve the needs of the network as a whole and sometimes you know their own needs require uh serving the network as a whole so you know the metaphor i'm building towards is that you know you have these big agricultural cities that you know a, a city state will control a huge hinterland of agricultural goods and you know obviously they're also doing cattle farming and you know r- raising livestock and processing animal products but in addition there's also migratory herders that you know move from place to place are not part of the state structure and sometimes have completely opposite aims and goals from the state structure but they feed their families and so on by selling wool and animal products and you know because they can herd it elsewhere and then bring it to town you know to get shorn and because they can bring their sheep to a specific place to get milk and so on you know they are totally different from the agricultural society and at the same time they are in a symbiotic relationship and, uh, you know, both prosper from their relationship. Life finds a way. True. Very cool. I like this. So the use of writing was restricted to the biggest centers. So only Unug and Susa, not counting a few other sites that have numerical tablets with maybe one pictographic sign. But essentially only in Unug and Susa, we have lots of officials processing huge quantities of different types of objects. At Unug, one tablet is often stamped by several officials, which probably speaks to different levels of administration in the bureaucracy. Other places definitely have their own systems of administrative control, like Hajanebi and Arsantepe and so on. But these other ones were less translatable across contexts. And before the combination of pictographic signs with numerical signs, there was no way to encode more than one type of data. So essentially these developments that we see invented at Unug and Susa will eventually spread to the rest of Iran and Mesopotamia via the Proto-Elamite and Cuneiform systems, respectively. The first texts we get from the Uruk-4 period are just lots of lists of grain, labor, and taxes, in decreasing order of frequency, they list barley as rations and taxes, then war captives, then male and female slaves. Generally, these texts show a preoccupation with the population role. Like I said, conquest was more about adding population than it was about controlling new territory. You know, the more labor you controlled, the more food you can grow to feed a larger army of labor, and so on. 
So the first written tablets show up around 3300 BCE, and they become more common later. Like I said, these mostly document the flow of commodities. They also record disbursement of textiles, grain, dairy, and dried fish. These are probably allotments to administrators to later distribute to their dependent workers. They're also for keeping track of unfree labor, as I said. One text is a list of 211 captives forced to work. In general, the majority of slaves recorded in these records are women. And the signs and formats they use for recording slaves are the same as those used for domestic animals. So the same language will be used to describe a one-year-old sheep to a one-year-old human infant. And the signs meaning adult female can refer either to a human or an animal. And the data points recorded for both slaves and animals include age, sex, how many of them there are, the names of their owners and or herders, their current location, the real or anticipated products that they can be expected to produce, whether it's dairy or textiles. So generally, we can think of slavery on the scale as a kind of domestication of human labor, especially given how they're treated by the institution. Infants are represented by a pictographic sign of breasts. Like I said, children are represented by the sign for a yearling animal. Adults are represented by the sign for a hoe, which of course underlines that they were expected to produce a certain amount of labor. Enslaved children seem to have entered the workforce around age six, which is also common in America up to the 19th century. So earlier I mentioned lexical texts. These are a list of words, for example, types of commodities, professions, like the Lu2A list that I mentioned earlier, or metals, or medical, magical, or linguistic knowledge. This format of the lexical text was used in scribal education. Essentially, you would learn cuneiform by copying list of signs over and over with the idea being that eventually you will have copied every sign that you have to use as a scribe. Over time, this process produces a lot of lexical texts, because you always have new students coming through the program. Lexical texts make up about 10% of the texts from the Aeonic complex. They were mostly found in construction fills during the late Uruk and Jemnat Nasser periods. Essentially, they were trash, thrown away as garbage after they're no longer useful. These texts reflect a scribal construction of reality, not necessarily the worldview of regular people. So it's really more of an employee handbook or a book of corporate SOP than it is like a dictionary. And the misanalogy, your job as a scribe, also includes copying the entire employee handbook by hand. As I already mentioned, one of those is the metals list. We have 56 copies of this, mostly from the end of the Uruk period. It's a catalog of various metals, including iron, as well as types of stone and stone objects. It's at least 85 lines long, and it continued to be copied well into historical times, as far away as Ebla in northwestern Syria. So essentially, it was a way for scribes to practice recording, storing, and distributing metal and metal objects. So it reflects the scribe's point of view, not that of metalsmiths. Tools were described in terms of what they were used to make. For example, there are seven types of chisels mentioned. Plain chisels, chisels for making vessels, for making rings, for making carts, etc. In 2010, Jennifer Ross said it was more likely that artisans would differentiate by size or material, and then they would know what kinds of things they could make with it. But for scribes who are basically just measuring out numbers of different types of chisels to hand out to artisans, it's easiest for them to associate the tool with the specific job that they expect the artisan to carry out. So if the temple wants to organize production of carts, they're going to allocate a certain number of chisels for carts, regardless of what the actual artisan would call that chisel or use it primarily for. In the medals list, the sign An, meaning heaven or god, is used to distinguish between different types of vessel. It's also the name of the god of heaven. It forms part of the name of several different types of metal. So Jennifer Ross hypothesized that An refers to a copper arsenic alloy, in other words, bronze, Remember, we are in the Bronze Age now. Other metals include Urudu, or copper. The sign Ku in archaic texts refers to some kind of dairy product, apparently, or the container that it comes in. But in Sumerian, that same sign is used to refer to precious metals. It's worth noting that around the same time as the lexical texts first appear, gold and silver also appear in large numbers in Unug. So generally, tools are a way for humans to extend their skills by adding outside materials to their repertoire. Spears and knives extend human hunting and fighting skills. Baskets and pottery extend human carrying skills. Agriculture and stock breeding were extensions of foraging or subsistence skills. And of course, writing radically transforms the way that we experience memory now that we're no longer reliant on biological limits. 
writing also standardized communication between segments of these huge institutions, you know, temples. Now that all information was documented in the same way, data from different segments would now be fundable, leading to a more dense accumulation and exchange of information. This would have caused a realignment of the scribe's worldview. Remember, only a tiny fraction of the population at this point is literate, but that tiny literate fraction is in charge of the institution that is organizing all of society, both economically, politically, religiously, etc. And they're doing so based on the organizational principles embodied in written records. So for example, even though the temple on paper, on clay, owns thousands of sheep, those sheep are almost never in the same place. But because they are all recorded in these documents and herded by shepherds who are recorded in these documents, now everyone accepts the social construction of ownership of these huge flocks of sheep by the temple which essentially is a reorganization of the economic system of Mesopotamia, according to the way that the temple keeps its records. Which really, seriously, like, wow, that is so freaking cool. There are a lot of firsts here. There are a lot of firsts, and I feel like, you know, obviously writing is the beginning of history, like, by definition. Yeah. If you want to get pedantic about it, it's not really history, because they cannot tell us about their world more than the literal contents of the temple records, mm. nor do they really want to, for the same reason that it is possible to write a great work of literature in the cells in an Excel spreadsheet, but would you want to? <laughs> like, like, you know, it, it is a tool for measuring things and, you know, for keeping track of the, the objects that are in the temple and the people that are paid. But it takes another thousand years for people to think of it as a medium for expressing, you know, what they do with poetry and music and so on. Oh, that's, that's really beautiful. Yeah. So that's that on writing. So we're going to end with a hymn to Nisaba. She was the goddess of writing and serial agriculture. This text refers to Urash, the earth goddess. And the Akur, or House of the Mountain, which was a temple to Enlil in Nippur. Lady, colored like the stars of heaven, perfectly endowed with a lapis lazuli tablet. Nisaba, great wild cow, born by Urash. Wild sheep, nourished on good milk, among holy alkaline plants. Perfectly endowed with fifty great divine powers. My lady, most powerful in Akur. Dragon emerging in glory at the festival. Calming the region with cool water. Lavishing fine oil on the foreign lands. Engendered in wisdom by the great mountain Enlil. Good woman, chief scribe of An, record keeper of Enlil, wise sage of the gods. So the goddess of writing was described for the gods. Not for nothing, this is a woman with a skilled job in ancient mythology. The text continues. In order to make barley and flax grow in the furrows, so that excellent grain can be admired. To provide for the seven great throne deuses by making flax shoot forth and making barley shoot forth at the harvest. The august festival of Enlil. In her great princely role, she has cleansed her body and has draped the holy priestly garment on her torso. So we know already that every myth is about serial agriculture. This text mentions two specific goddesses of agriculture, Kuzu and Ezina. In order to establish bread offerings where none existed, and to pour forth great libations of alcohol, so as to appease the god of grandeur, Enlil, and to appease merciful Kusu and Ezina, she will appoint a festival. She will appoint a great end-priest of the land. Enki approaches the maiden Nisaba in prayer. He has opened up Nisaba's house of learning and placed a lapis lazuli tablet on her knees for her to consult the holy tablet of the heavenly stars. In Arata, he has placed a Zagin at her disposal. You have built up Eresh in abundance, founded from little bricks. You who are granted the most complex wisdom. So the Azagin is the temple to Anana in the legendary city of Arata in Iran. Azagin literally means house of lapis lazuli. And remember, almost all minerals and wood that the Uruk society used would have had to be imported, including lapis lazuli, boxwood, and cedar. In the Abzu, the great crown of Eridu, where sanctuaries are apportioned. When Enlil, the great princely farmer of the awe-inspiring temple, the carpenter of Eridu, the master of purification rites, 
the lord of the great end priest's precinct, builds up the Abzu of Eridu. When he splits with an axe the house of Boxwood. When the sage's hair is allowed to hang loose. When he opens the house of learning. When he stands in the street of the door of learning. When he finishes the great dining hall of cedar. When he grasps the date palm mace. When he strikes the priestly garment with that mace. So this might refer to the process of making linen, where the fulling stage involves hitting it with a club. And of course, the mace is a symbol of leadership, as we've been talking about more or less continuously. So N priest, literally N is the Sumerian word for lord. Now, there is some kind of ideology of leadership built into this mythology. Enki utters seven prayers to Nisaba, the supreme nursemaid. O Nisaba, good woman, fair woman, woman born in the mountains. Nisaba, may you be the butter in the cattle pen. May you be the cream in the sheepfold. May you be keeper of the seal in the treasury. May you be a good steward in the palace. May you be a heaper-up of grain among the grain piles and in the grain stores. Because the prince Enki cherished Nisaba, O oh, Father Enki, it is sweet to praise you.